Hope you're ready. <laughs> We're going to dive back down a rabbit hole tonight, in part. <laughs> Told you all last week, the rabbit hole of biology is so broad so what we're going to do tonight as we develop our biblical worldview and look at biology, we're going to, I'm going to quickly recap some implications, that we, or some, some implications from what we saw last week as far as what does Scripture say? What is life? How did life get here? What is the purpose of life? Uh, and then I'm going to, we're going to pull in. Tonight is going to be a little bit more science-based, uh, but looking essentially at uh, what does the evidence say in regard to a special, specific creation of the universe? Um, it's not going to be as, it's not, I'm not offering you a comprehensive doctoral class tonight. There's so much more that I, I don't even know if you can say I scratch the surface, but we're going to scratch something. And uh, we're going to scratch something true and do the best we, the best we can on it. So just remind you, biology would be the study of life and living organisms. On a philosophical level, really, it's, it's understanding the question of origins. How did we get here? What's the purpose? Why are we here? Uh, why does it matter that we're here? What gives life? All, all of these kind of questions. And for the last 200 years of church history, perhaps no other question has, has been more problematic and caused more tension for believers, whether it's in their own eternal wrestlings or whether it's to be seen as valid in a, uh, in a highly materialistic, naturalistic world. But it is vital. Remember when we talk worldview, there's, there's four primary questions every worldview has to answer. The foundational question is, how did we get here? And that question is all sorts of derivatives. How did we get here? Why do we get here? What are we here for? Why does it matter? You go on down the line and all of that. So when you get the question of how did we get here wrong, you will inherently corrupt and change the answers to all these other questions that are foundational for life. So I want to remind us, what did we see last week? We spent a lot of time just reading through Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 is the narrative that tells us in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that which is seen, that which is unseen. So the realm in which we live, known as the physical universe, the realm in which uh, those who have died live, uh, the, the spiritual universe where there is heaven and there is hell and angels and demons. And uh, we, these, the, the seen and the unseen, the visible and the invisible, as Scripture puts it. In the beginning, God created these. He created the invisible first. We know from Job that God created all of the angels, and as the angels watched God create the physical universe, they sang for joy. So the invisible uh, universe, then the physical universe. Inside of the physical universe, Genesis chapter 1 chronicles uh, the six days that God spent creating. He created things with an order by the sheer power of His Word. We see in that first chapter, we see God the Father creating. We know from the New Testament, it's Jesus Christ, the Son, who's actually bringing about that creation. We see the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters and breathing life into creation. The triune God is on full display, which on day six, we know the pinnacle statement. Then God said, God singular, one being, let us, plural, three persons, the Trinity, make man in our image. And so God created singular, male and female, and all of a sudden, out of all of creation, as the final act, 
Having prepared an entire universe for us to inhabit, God creates humankind in, in, in a broad statement in two distinct styles, male, female, pertaining to one's biology, perfectly in the image of God, beautifully in the image of God, to exercise rule and dominion just as God exercises over us, but for us to take and to fill this world. We find that the Bible place, and then, and then about Genesis 2 then comes in, tells you on the seventh day God rested, and then the rest of Genesis 2 takes you back specifically and zooms in on when God created man and woman and gives you more detail on the order in which he created man first and then female. And that's not just there by happens chance. Even in the New Testament, there are doctrinal things that Paul places on the order in which God created male and female. So the, all, all of what we find in Genesis 1 and 2 and then on through is the foundation for everything. We know the Bible places great significance on the origins of, of the universe, Genesis 1, Job 38, John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, as well as multiple other places. The early church saw this in Scripture, recognized it, and you can go and go, we looked several weeks ago at the Apostles' Creed. What's the very beginning of it say? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. The very foundational beginning, the early church reckon, recognized it. The question of origins directs our, directs our understanding of, of other vital doctrines. Anthropology, what does it mean to be human? Our intrinsic and unique and distinct value and worth that is different than all of creation. Why should we care more about saving human lives than plant lives? What makes us different than the plants? It, it, it demonstrates that all humankind, there are multiple ethnicities, but only one race, the human race, and we all have a common ancestor. We're bound to each other in one way or another. No ethnicity is greater than another. That's a key point to know. It's part of the basis for why slavery is wrong in all forms and shapes and sizes it can take throughout history. It's why Darwinianism and eugenics and seeking to create the superior race in terms of their language is wrong. No ethnicity is better than another because all ethnicity is is a difference of, uh, a difference of melanonin and uh, difference of skin color, different of cultural origin, but not different as far as we're all still human. Same blood fills our veins. No ethnicity is more in the image of God than another. And that's vital. That was an argument that was made in, in certain ways to justify in American churches our version of American slavery in the 1800s. Male and female, both are unique, distinct from all the rest of creation. They're biological, biologically based. They're complementary they're equal in value, worth, and image-bearing of God. Yes, God has created different roles inside of the family and in, in certain parts of the church, but make no mistake, male and female are unique, stink, valuable. One's not greater than the other, but both are equal in image-bearing of God. It impacts our understanding of sin. We didn't get there last week, but Genesis 3, the fact that sin impacts all of creation, not just us as humans. It breaks our relationship with with the physical universe, breaks our relationship with ourselves, breaks our relationship with each other, breaks our relationship, most importantly, with God. It teaches us that physical creation itself is not evil. It's broken. It's broken. I'll give you an example. There's times we can, we can value the spiritual and see the physical as not sacred. Spiritually, it's important that I pray. 
But what job I hold, God doesn't care about. Baloney. God cares just as much as you pray as what job you hold. Because your job and your work is just as sacred to God as your time in prayer. This is why it's easy for us to go, oh, don't, don't covet. That's a sin. But we don't pay any attention to how we treat our bodies, ignoring the fact that gluttony and starvation are both sins on opposite ends of the spectrum with how you treat your body. Mutilation of your body. All of those are sins, according to Scripture. Sometimes we'll harp. Paul said, for bodily discipline is of some gain, but training in godliness is for all things. And we'll go, ah, training for godliness. Yes, but don't miss the fact he did say bodily training is for some gain. There's some of us who spiritually are unwell because physically we treat our bodies horribly. Yet it's our body that is said to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. So there's, there's physical creation is not evil. The, the things that come with being a physical creation is not evil. It's just broken. And in need of restoration, only God can give. We understand that in creation there is general revelation that there is a language that the intelligent God of the universe who created everything, that he wrote a language into creation, that certain parts of who he is, of how he is, of his divine nature, his, his great power, his intelligence, that those things are written in such a way that if you, can, if you can visualize it with me, when you look at creation, you read creation proclaiming the glory and wonder of God. We understand that. That's the basis of general revelation. It's things that differentiate us from other religions and worldviews. We understand God created out of nothing. Matter has not always been existent. That all aspects of creation God made. He didn't make some and, and, and left others to chance. Uh, it means both the physical and spiritual are valuable. We see the work of the Trinity in creation and we understand that it's all for the purpose of God's glory. And we saw last week all the different ramifications, especially as it relates to us. Why is life valuable at the moment of conception? Because it's in the image of God. Why is it important to, to understand and help people understand how God made you was not by mistake? Your biological structure wasn't a mistake. Don't buy the nonsense of culture that tells you you are something different in your spirit than you are in your body. If you're male in your body, you're male in your spirit. It's a, it's a lie of cult. I mean, all, all these things we're watching today that are outflows of sexuality and, and all these different, they are all answered in God's creation of the universe. They are all answered by the, answering the question, how did we get here? Why are we here? We are here for his glory. We're here for a relationship with him. We are here to love him, to be loved by him, to be known by him, to know him, to love him. This is where life's fulfillment, happiness, joy is all found. And the reason more don't find it is because we are all born into brokenness, not known by Him, not knowing Him, not standing in a place where we can receive His love, and not loving Him in return. We're born broken and in bondage to sin, which is what Genesis 3 answers for us. And Genesis 4 perfectly illustrates how bad that it is. And we saw, again, that's my attempt to summarize in about eight minutes what we looked at last week. This is where it contrasts. Especially in Western society, Europe and North America, for the last 150 to 200 years, 
the predominant worldview that has espoused and attempted to answer the question, how did we get here, has been that of philosophical naturalism. Naturalism. The belief that everything has a, has, has a and only a natural answer. It is a prior assumption that there can be no supernatural. Everything has to have a natural answer, and it has to have a natural answer because we are committed to what, and I'm going to clarify my terms here, I don't want to profane the term science. Science is made by God. Science is possible because God wrote a universe that could be studied, experimented on, observed, repeated, read, and understood. Science is of God. Scientism is of man. Scientism is the removal of God from his throne in the elevation of science to the position of God to where the only things that are real, that are true, that are, that are right, are those things which we as humans can hypothesize, experiment on, observe those experiments, make conclusions, and repeat. Please understand with me from the beginning the impossibility of science to even answer things that aren't controversial. Can you hypothesize, experiment on, observe, and repeat as though you're working with chemicals, love. Every one of us knows that's nonsense. And most human beings, even lost, know that's nonsense. But that is exactly what scientism holds to. And when we move further down the train to what these other false, uh, especially humanistic worldviews hold psychologically, that is what they ultimately say. All you and I are simply, all we are as beings, we're just matter. We're just machines. We're just machines that chemically respond to whatever conditions we're placed in, which is basically a scientific form of fatalism. You don't have a free will. You're just a bunch of chemicals that interact. Love is not anything meaning or, or deeper or beyond the physical. It is just simply chemicals interacting in your body to certain stimuli. But I promise you those same scientists do not go home to their loved ones and go... Hi, I really feel chemically attracted to you. <laughs> it's not what they do. We understand there's things that go beyond what human beings can perform science on. But scientism is the belief that everything comes down to a naturalistic explanation. And for this, listen, atheism is nothing new historically. There have been atheists throughout known history. What is different is for most of known history, atheism, and I use that broadly, any, any, any religious or worldview belief that removes a supernatural God or pantheon of gods, where it's just the natural, the, the challenge to atheism that made it laughable was no one could offer an explanation of how we got here which is why there is such an idolatry, even though it's breaking down today, of Charles Darwin and what he espoused 
with his origin of species. Because he espoused a naturalistic theory of how we got here with no God, with no outside intervention. Which is why, and I'll use the term Darwinian evolution, is the single key, the single pillar of faith that all naturalism hinges on. Without it, naturalism cannot provide an answer to the most foundational question of a worldview, which is how we got here. And when you go through the different primary worldviews, secular humanism, it sits on Darwinian evolution. Marxism, it sits on a variation of Darwinian evolution. Even postmodernism, which says nothing can be known for sure or certain. Even postmodernism will still try to hang some parts of its coat on that, on that peg. And so here's, here's what we're going to do tonight. I, I just, as we think about what Scripture says, that at the, core, at the core you've got these two very polarized positions. Either God created or it all evolved. Those are the two big, there's, there's other players in this conversation, but those are the two big players for, for us as believers. Really what I want to do tonight is just look at how this claim, it all evolved, just a few key pieces of evidence, falls short, and in falling short, actually validates God created. So, here we go. I do not have a cheat sheet for you because I spent most of the day at the doctor's office with Bethany. We know if it's a boy or girl. But y'all won't know tonight because we haven't even gotten to tell most of our family, so. <laughs> but we do know, and biologically, we know with 100% certainty whether it's a boy or girl. Not at all. <clears throat> it's a good thing I'm far away and there's no cameras zoomed in on me. So, no, we will let you know at some point, but it's, it's all fresh. We just found out today. We're excited. Baby's healthy. Um, and we praise God for the unique, wonderful miracle that is life, and specifically human life. Um, and uh, we're just continue to cover your prayer. So let's make some important distinctions here real quick. There is a difference between what we call microevolution and macroevolution. Microevolution would be small adaptive changes that can take place genetically within a species based on a variety of factors. This is the classic experiment, right? You've got a certain kind of moth. If they're around a bunch of dark wood, you slowly notice over several generations, they get black. If you put them around lighter wood, you notice over several generations, they get white. That is not problematic for anything Scripture says. Scripture says God created every living thing and even produce according to its kind. Variation in kind, it's not a problem that there's more than, there's not just a dog. There's tons of different kinds of dogs. That's not problematic. What's problematic is what macroevolution is, which is what we would, uh, we would be more familiar with as from culture, where small adaptive changes accumulating over vast amount of time take one species and completely alter it into an entirely different species. So it's not that there was an original dog, and from that original dog came all these different kinds of dogs. It's that there was an original dog that then became a cat, 
That thing became a cow. And I mean, that's not the order they put it in, but you follow. It's, it's, it's species jumping over small time, starting with non-living, non-living material, which slowly evolved into one-celled organism, which in turn, through eons and billions of years, turned into an amoeba, which went on and on to turn into man. Those are an important distinction. Because sometimes when you get down the real deep rabbit hole, people will try to peg you on micro, microevolution is not dangerous. It's just species. Is there a problem to say we have one human, there, there's one human ancestor, but man, do we all look really different? No, it's not a problem. But there is a problem to say something that wasn't a human changed and became a human. So here are some challenges for naturalistic evolution. One, the fact that life can only come from pre-existing life. Life can only come from pre-existing life. In other words, something dead or not alive can't make something that's alive. At the core of, at the core of Darwinian evolution is the idea of spontaneous generation. Spontaneous generation, the belief that non-living matter suddenly produced something alive through a purely natural process with no outside intervention. Uh, the problem with this is it's actually already been proven false scientifically through experimentation back in the mid-1800s. It was established it couldn't. And, act, and I should be clear, naturalistic evolution holds to spontaneous generation. In fairness to Darwin, he was not even willing to go that far because he saw what the data said. In fact, one of the, a Harvard professor, a Nobel Prize winner said, basically held that we must believe in spontaneous generation because if we don't hold to this tenet, the only other option to explain everything is supernatural creation. Remember that, what's what we'll end with. Um, when you take all things, this is, this is from a former chemical evolutionist, when, when all relevant lines of evidence are taken into account and all problems squarely faced, I think we must conclude that life owes its inception to a source outside of nature. There's never, there, there, it's impossible for genetic information to have a spontaneous origin. Every attempt to duplicate it uh, the conditions necessary for a chemical evolution of non-biological material have failed. In fact, if you go back, even in the evidence, <laughs> geochemically, uh, if there was more O2 early in the Earth's atmosphere, more presence of oxygen, it would oxidize anything that even remotely could turn from non-life into life. In fact, when you rewind the clock and you look at all the factors for life to occur, what you find is that the existence of our ozone and the existence of biological life must have originated virtually simultaneously, not one to the other. So there's a problem of spontaneous generation. There's a problem of the fossil record. So if life didn't come from pre-existing life, then you also, the, the challenge is uh, random chance processes don't produce intelligible information. Here's what I mean by that. If I were to bring tonight, and I didn't, sorry for you Scrabble lovers, if I were to bring a game of Scrabble and dump all the tiles out on this table and we left them there, it doesn't matter what happens, those Scrabble tiles are never going to end up reading a full-fledged sentence won't happen. Random chance processes don't produce intelligible information. You find things like this. The fossil record. 
we to this day still have no evidence of a transitionary species. We've got monkey skeletons. We've got human skeletons. We don't have an in-between. We've got whale skeletons. We've got cow skeletons, but we don't have an in-between. And if I remember right, my evolutionary theory, whales evolved into cows. In fact, the record, this was quoted from a, a, a secular geologist, the record of evolution is surprisingly jerky, and, iron, and ironically, we have fewer examples of evolutionary transition than Darwin had in his day because things have further been identified and proven not to be a transitionary species. In order to explain away the gaps that are in, because right, Darwin postulated this evolutionary tree that in all this life and diversity you see today, if you were to rewind it, all these leaves would go back to the branches, which would go back to the main branches, which would go back to the trunk, which would go back to a common, a common seed in the ground. The problem is when we look at the evolutionary tree from the fossil record, there's all sorts of gaps and branches that aren't connected to the same branches, as if there's different trees or different kinds. In order to explain this away, what's been postulated is that of punctuated equilibrium, the belief that these evolutionary changes from one species to another, they don't take place slowly and gradually over time. That the reason we can't find their fossils is because these changes from whale to cow happened so quick and so fast, we don't have, we, we don't have there wasn't enough fossils to, prove, to, to die and, and fossilize. That's convenient. The fascinating thing is Charles Darwin was the one who said, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed, which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive modifications, my theory would absolutely break down, i.e., if it doesn't happen slowly over time with proof, my theory's false. We have what's called the Cambrian explosion of life, with Cambrian being a, a, a rock layer, where prior to that rock layer, you don't see much life, and then all of a sudden, you hit that ancient rock layer, and there's an explosion of, of animal life. In fact, it said that out of the 40 different phyla in the animal kingdom, at least 19, if not upwards of 35, have their unique instinct origins in that series of rock, as if they were made that way each with a unique biological category, unique architecture, blueprint, structural design. In fact, what we find as you go back in the rock strata is not only, certainly we find creatures that no longer are alive, but what we find is all of these creatures are complex. They have complex body structures, complex organs like eyes, and we can't find any of their ancestors. And remember, the core tenet of evolution is not only that we go back, but that we go back to simple. Everything moves from simple to more complex. What we do as we go back is we just find nothing but complex. As if a brilliant designer wrote it. Natural selection. This was the mechanism that's used by nature through competition and other factors such as predators, geography, and time, where only the life forms best suited to survive will live and produce. It was attempted to be used. In fact, it's used in the artificial breeding within species, right? You, you try to, you know, various, uh, I think they do this, I could be off, but I think they do this with racehorses is you make sure to breed the right ones to get the best set of genes to do these very things. And uh, here's what they found as they do all these different kinds of, of breeding. 
make sure I read my notes right. <laughs> Basically, and even in the example I've just given it to you, how do you take multiple different breeds and try to breed the breasts together to get the purebred? Through an intelligent design process? Not by random chance. Not only that, but as people have engaged and look at the breeding of animals, there are barriers which breeders can never produce change past. Meaning, microevolution happens. You can have within a species, within a kind, small adaptations that make them better or could potentially make them weaker, but you never have a horse become a pig. In fact, again, an evolutionist said some remarkable things have been done by crossbreeding and selection inside species or within a larger circle of related species such as wheats. But wheat is still wheat and not a grapefruit. And we can no more grow wings on pigs than hens can make cylindrical eggs. In fact, the very man who, one of the very founders of the theory of natural selection grew to doubt his theory by the end of his life because because of the species barriers that you could not go past, as if everything was made according to its kind and was charged with reproducing only in accordance with its kind. We know, so random chance processes don't produce the intelligible information that we see, which leads to the fact that when you look at living life, when you look at living organisms, there seems to be the appearance of design. This is the classic illustration of if you walk in the woods and you find a watch, your first assumption is not, how did all of the dust accumulate over billions of years to produce this incredibly intricate Rolex? Your assumption is, well, who made it? Is it a Rolex? Is it a fossil watch? Is it a swatch? Who made it? This leads into the study of teleology, which would be what is when we look at the universe, where do we see design and purpose? And we find design and purpose. I mentioned some examples last week, like the size of the earth and the size of the moon in relation to each other for the tides, the speed of the earth. We see design, the placement of Jupiter, all of the factors that allow for life. When we look at DNA, when we look at DNA, we find a complexity in the language. One, we find that DNA is a language. It's not just random random particles that are together. It's a language more complex than anything humans have ever written and which we still don't fully understand all of. I believe last week, I don't have last week's notes with me. If I remember right, I gave you the example that some of the core amino acids that are necessary for DNA to form are required to form each other, which means one can't exist independent of the other which takes you, there's so many things in, 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 in creation which we call irreducible complexity that when you try to take a complex system and reduce it down to its parts, you reach a point where you can't reduce it anymore because if you were to reduce it anymore, those parts can't exist. They can't come into being unless they were placed that way. We know in addition, we see design, we see things like, the, uh, in addition to design, uh, we see, and I mentioned earlier, we, we'll look at this more in weeks to come too, the immaterial world we know is real. You can say all day long what you want about your commitment to naturalism, but you still live and move and operate as if your mind controls your body and your mind is not a slave to your body. You still operate, it goes back to love. Love, you, we all know love is something more than just chemicals popping off in our brain. 
It's interesting to me. I, there, there's, um, I, I, I'm not a diehard late night person. In fact, I, I don't ever watch late night uh, talk shows, but uh, YouTube will always throw random clips up. And I'm not, necess- I'm not a fan of the Colbert show, but he does an interesting thing. He has a questionnaire. And it's got questions that he asks these famous people from apples or oranges, what's your favorite? To what's something you still are hanging on to you should throw out? One of his questions is, and this is why I click into it because it fascinates me, one of his questions is, what happens when we die? So far, and I've probably watched around 20 different celebrities, prominent people who've answered, no one has said, well, we just cease because all we are is dust. They all have some kind of answer or hope for what they wish would be because there is something immaterial, non-physical. It's called eternity, which God has set on our hearts because he created us in his image and we are more than just our bodies. There's the challenge of the second law of thermodynamics. The second law of thermodynamics basically says that you've got, that there is a set amount of energy in the universe. That energy amount never changes, but the amount of energy available to do useful work is constantly decreasing. There's less and less energy available. Now, here's here's the challenge of the second law of thermodynamics. Rewind the clock. You rewind, you know, so you put in the tape and you mash, remember old VCRs, you mash rewind and it, you know, you watch everything in reverse. If you were to watch all that energy reverse, so energy, less and less usable energy. If you go in reverse, more and more usable energy. Well, if there's not a beginning to start that energy on its path, in theory, there would be more usable energy than there is actual energy in existence. Second law of thermodynamics, it would contradict the first law of thermodynamics if there's not a beginning. In addition to all of this, and I don't have enough, this is said, I don't even feel like tonight we're scratching the surface. I'm just trying to give you a couple facts to make your mind move to come back to make an application point here at the end. But there is a movement in the scientific community today, you're never going to hear about as a normal person. I don't know that I could fully explain all of what brief I've read, but there is a movement in the scientific community to acknowledge that the theory of evolution doesn't fly. And this is why, ironically, you are seeing scholarly scientific people espouse and turn to alternative theories for how did we get here? Well, aliens. I know you're going to laugh. I'm, I'm being very serious that these theories are gaining credibility because what we've assumed from, and it goes, well, look, this is still naturally consistent. Another creature started the process here. But okay, it still begs the same question. How'd that creature get there? Or here's another one of the things that's, po- and it's not just popular in the movies if you're trying to keep up with all the superhero stuff. Legitimately, the multiverse is a real theory that they're running around with, that there's all these parallel universes to try to make up for all of the chances, for basically the fact that it's statistically, it's impossible that we are here. All of these are challenges to naturalistic evolution. But you go, but pastor, why? It seems like there is so much credibility to lead towards that minimum intelligent design that some kind of being outside of this universe with an unbelievable intelligence created this complex universe where life exists and we have meaning. Yeah, the evidence is overwhelming. 
but you don't hear it because there's not a lot of Christians who are scientists and Christians in positions of power from which to broadcast it. You don't hear it, and that's a whole different, that is a different cultural rabbit trail I'm not going to hit tonight, but one of the things, if you study 20th century uh, American history and American church history, is sometime around 100 years ago, in response to these attacks societally, one of the things that the church did out of the Second Great Awakening that was very dumb is we became so intrigued by emotional religious experience that we began to downplay the importance of sound intellectualism, which led us in these to retreat from the schools, to retreat from the universities, to retreat from the media of its day, to retreat from the science field, to grow insular. And in, and in that period of retreating, we gave up a lot of ground that now you're seeing the full fruit being born today, which is why if you, if you go and try to hold the creation, you're left out. By the way, and it's not just that you can be laughed out in secular circles, uh, but it was, it was a well-known fact that my, and my football coach in high school tried to dispute it, and then he went and researched it because it had to do with his alma mater, and he found out that what my pastor said was right. Uh, it, was, it would have been in some time in the last 20 years, sometime in the 2000s, uh, Baylor University fired a professor for teaching intelligent design. Baylor. Sorry if your bubble hasn't been popped that Baylor doesn't uphold all of Scripture, and I just popped it, but... Um, even in some parts of the Christian community, to really hold to a full special creation of intelligent design can be there. Now, how, so how did we get here? If there's evidence that that, well, I want you to listen to, this is Richard uh, Lewontin, a Harvard evolutionary biologist. He says this, we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. That'd be his word for naturalism. It is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world. So it's not that the use and means of science has shown us enough evidence to firmly conclude that it must be a naturalistic explanation. On the contrary, we are forced by our prior adherence to materialism to produce materialistic explanations. That materialism is absolute, i.e., we have a prior commitment before we ever look at the data to make sure the data comes out and says what we're firmly committed to. So we don't follow the evidence. We look at the evidence how we want to look at it to get the end that we want to get from it. That materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. It's easy to get the answer you want, when you assume from the beginning your answer is right, regardless of what the evidence shows you. And we as believers are not people who are supposed to take things on faith, i.e., no evidence. The very definition of biblical faith is to believe that which is true, which implies evidence. And the evidence is clear. You do not get the question of how we got here apart from a creator creating it just like for the last 4,000 years, Genesis 1-1 has read. Now, I realize in Christian circles, then that opens up a floodgate of other questions. Well, what process did God? Was it a literal six days? Was it periods? Was it this and that? That's why I said this is a deep rabbit hole. We're only, we're only doing this little bit to just establish God created. 
There's a place for those other questions. There's a time for those other questions. And I shared last week, it's going to be something in the next year we dive into. I just need more time to do the research I'm happy that, I'm, that I feel is necessary uh, to both um, teach you accurately and be fair to all people in the conversation. I'll lay my cards on the table. Uh, I think all things considered, when you look at the text, uh, I, think, I think the text is very clear. Our God is not bound by the laws of nature. He rules the laws of nature, and he can create a fully developed, mature universe in six literal 24-hour days if he chooses to. That's what the language of Genesis 1 seems to read. I'm happy to have conversations. I'm not going to fight people over it. Uh, but if you just want to know where I stand, I think that's where I stand. I don't th- I, that is where I stand, not I think. Uh, there's reasons why I'm not giving you all of those for the sake of time tonight, because i got to make a final point here. But the simple point for tonight is the evidence is weighty. There is no evidence for naturalistic evolution. There is evidence for a supernatural intelligent design, an intelligent design, a supernatural outside origin of the universe and all of life which is then the starting point for us to say, okay, well, now out of those worldviews that offer us an explanation, which one is consistent across the board? And we looked at that last week. And here's why all of this matters. If it's all Genesis 1 and 2, if all of creation is just an allegory, if it's not there, then understand this. The God who says he is truth and does not lie has lied. And he's not the God he says he is then the Bible presents falsehood, then Jesus presents falsehood, and Jesus is pointless. God is supernatural. If Genesis 1 through 11 aren't real, if they're not, if they're not true, then is Exodus 14 and the parting of the Red Sea? Is Daniel 3 and Daniel 6 when, when Jesus stands in the flame of the fire of the furnace or when, when Daniel is rescued from the lion's den? For the matter of fact, if, if all of that's not real, is the resurrection even possible? Because frankly, the resurrections, we can perform science on dead bodies. They don't come back to life. And if the resurrection's not real, can salvation be a reality? Where, where do you stop that will going? Scripture reveals the supernatural is supernatural, not natural. The reality is, when it comes to what we call science, we don't know a fraction of what there is to know. And every one of us has to choose as a believer, will we place our trust in the minds and human hands, or do we set our trust firmly on what God has graciously and clearly revealed in His Word, where he reveals that he creates all things with a purpose, with a design, the pinnacle of all of which is you and me. To be loved by him, to be known by him, to be in relationship with him, to know him, to love him, to live out his goodness and his dominion over creation. That's why when the Lord comes back, we get a new heaven and a new earth where we're going to live out God's purposes in a physical existence for all eternity. And we're going to do it without aching knees and backs. We're going to do it with, I I don't know, maybe you get a choice as what you think your prime of look is, whatever color hair you want and balding or not balding or this or that. You're going to do it not running out of breath. You're going to do it seeing the glory of God for all eternity because we understand that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So don't let anybody make you feel crazy, even if you go, I'm not a scientist and I don't know how to answer that question right off the bat. That's okay. We can help get information to answer the question. But don't let anybody make you feel crazy 
for the fact that you hold to and you set yourself firmly on the truth that in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth and you're not crazy, you're right. And we've got to hold that line truthfully and present that truth graciously and inspire a new generation of believers to fight hard battles, to go into scientific realms where they will be ostracized, where they will be persecuted, where they will be laughed. Because I'll tell you this, I'm not a scientist. God's given me a good mind. I'm not a scientist. I had a joke with all our Aggies. When you start throwing that word quantum around, quantum mechanics, quantum physics, I'm done. What is quantum? We need, God has made fearfully and wonderfully boys and girls, men and women who hold true to his line. Here's the other reality. If you, if you already come with a false premise when you look at scientific data, you aren't going to be able to get the right answer. Can you imagine how many scientific answers we've missed out on in the last 150 years because everybody who's looking at the data is starting from a false conclusion? What if we had people, think about that with Daniel, right? All of those counselors of Babylon couldn't interpret the king's dream because they all were starting from the wrong conclusion. Only those, only Daniel could interpret the dream, but, he, but then he and the, the other three guys, only they were found to have the wisdom of God to know how to address these cultural situations. Why? Because they followed the evidence empowered by the Lord. To, man, how much have we missed out on our society? Oh my goodness, I got to stop. It's, it's, it's 6.58. I told you we'd done it at 6.55. Um, love you, church family. We will uh, see you Sunday for the handwriting on the wall. Get excited. So let me pray us out. Father, thank you for our time tonight. Thank you for blessing us as a church family. Thank you for what you're doing. And thank you that your word is true. And may we not be afraid to be laughed at by popular culture. Certainly, Lord, we don't want to uh, be anti-intellectual and just go, ah, oh, you know what? Uh, I'm not going to ever look into the information that's there. I'm not going to. Lord, there are some hard conversations to have there, and I'm not by any means tonight trying to overshadow those, and you know that. But it is clear. Your word is clear, God. You designed this universe. You created this universe, and the evidence all points to it. Lord, and oh, they're just all the ramifications to know that we sit here tonight as the bearers of your image, every one of us born in rebellion, whom Jesus, you stepped down, not just out of heaven, for you are beyond heaven. You created heaven. You stepped down from glory, one who is no beginning and end, not bound by flesh or weakness, and you stepped in and became flesh and took on weakness. You didn't just appear, but you went through every single part of human life just like we do, from conception to life's final breath. You did it to live the life we failed to live. You did it to go to the cross to die the death that is our just wages. You did it to bear the punishment we rightly deserve. You did it to rise from the grave so that you could justify and redeem Every man and woman born in your image, broken by sin, who cries out in faith and you and your grace would save and restore. Restore a relationship with you, restore in relationship with self, restore in relationship with others, ultimately restore in relationship with creation. And Lord, with creation, we groan and we cry out, come Lord Jesus, come soon. 
Jesus, we look to you and we bask in the glory of who you are and the fact that you made us and you saved us. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.